Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the No Lasting City podcast. I'm Scott Corian, your host, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. We're in the middle of a podcast series, Engaging the Sexual Revolution, or I guess more specifically, Making a Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And last episode, we looked at that from a historical perspective. Today, we want to make a case against the the revolution from an experiential perspective. God's design, even with its restrictions on our sexual activity, is for our good. It's for our joy. It's for our flourishing. And if we live by it, although it's not always easy and does require sacrifice and self-control, it's good. And if we depart from it, as the sexual revolution has done, if we repudiate it, then actually it doesn't work. It only leads to disappointment, disillusionment, emptiness, and pain, right? It doesn't deliver on its promises experientially. So that's what I mean by we're, we're going to make a case from an experiential perspective. From our experience, it just doesn't work. Now, this is, reality is something that the Bible talks about very clearly, particularly in the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 in particular, the father urges his son to obey God's sexual design. And the essence of his appeal to his son is experiential. It's essentially this, my son, obey God. Don't go off the path this is for your own good. If you go off the path, it's going to hurt. It's going to harm you. So just a, a couple of quick references here. So Proverbs 5, 3 through 5, the, the father tells his son, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to show. So there, there you have it. The father's saying, son, it might be attractive. It's enticing to go after the forbidden woman. Uh, it, it could look good. It, it, it sounds good. It's enticing. But if you go there, in the end, it's going to be bitter for you, my son. It, it, her steps go to show. So uh, there's five, three through five, six, 25 to 29. Similar point is made. Here, the context is adultery. And the father asks the son these rhetorical questions. Son, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. And then verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So you see, the father's ex appealing to the son's own good, his experience. If you depart from God's design, you're only hurting yourself. My grandfather used to, to say to me that some men go for short-term pleasure and get long-term pain. And, and that's a catchy way of saying what the Proverbs is saying. If you depart from God's design in this area, you may get short-term pleasure, you may not, but you may get short-term pleasure but it will bleed to long-term pain. He who does it destroys himself. Now, this is what the Bible teaches. If this is true, then we should expect that the current sexual revolution, with its outright rejection of God's wisdom, 
in this area with the casting off of all of the restraints that God has put around sex, we should expect that that is actually going to bring a lot of hurt to people. It's not going to bring the happiness and joy it promises, but it's going to bring harm. And that's exactly what we're starting to see. There are more voices now in the culture that are starting to push back on the sexual revolution simply because it's hurting people. It doesn't deliver on its promises. And so for the rest of this podcast, I want to interact with just one of those voices. This is from a book that I read earlier this year, a little book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by a woman named Louise Perry. Now, I want to be clear, this is not a Christian book. She is not a Christian. It's very clear when you read the book that that is not the case. As far as I can tell, she's an atheist. Uh, She self-identifies as a feminist. And this book does not appeal at all to the Bible, to Christian theology, Christian tradition. However, I'm glad she wrote the book, and I'm glad I read it, because she makes a very common grace argument, if I can use that phrase, without appealing to the Bible, that what the proverb says is right, and that there's a lot of pain being experienced by people that have bought the lie of the revolution. And so the book is really a challenge on the basis of of research, journals, these kinds of things. Uh, She challenges the progress narrative of the sexual revolution. She, She calls out the lies that she sees in our culture right now related to sex and sexuality that are false and that are just hurting people. And she identifies some specific ones that kind of undergird the the revolution and are very normative right now and shows just how they're just not true. I'm just going to focus on three lies that she identifies that I think are particularly important for us to be aware of and to be able to interact with. So let's get into it. Lie number one that she identifies in this book is this. Here's the lie. Sex is nothing more than a leisure activity that only has meaning if you choose to give it meaning, end quote. So one of the things that has happened over the last several decades, in her words, is that sex has been disenchanted. So what she means by that is now there's nothing sacred or significant about having sex with someone. It's just something that we do. It's not a big deal. It's a, it's a normal thing. And she really pushes back on this lie. She has actually two whole chapters in the book that really address this from different angles. One is called Sex Must Be Taken Seriously. And then another chapter later in the book, she, she writes, or the chapter title is Loveless Sex is Not Empowering. And on the whole, she just challenges the idea that sex isn't something that's very significant to people and spend some time talking about the hookup culture in our college campuses and even beyond and the damage that it is doing to people, particularly young women, which is her dominant concern in the book. Now, she rightly observes that in our country, hookup culture is now normal. That's just what's kind of expected. This is a quote. She says, absent some kind of religious commitment, 
The hookup culture is now the normal route presented to girls as they become sexually active. And young people tend to be very anxious about feeling normal, end quote. And so she's right. She she knows there's a lot of social pressure, both on men and women, to be sexually active early on with multiple partners. There, there's now shame if you're a virgin, if you have not had sex. That's particularly true for men, but also for women. And interestingly, I thought she has a good section where she points out that our culture actually now is trying to help women overcome their perfectly normal feelings of not wanting casual sex and multiple partners all the time. She observes that there's so many magazines out there now directed at women with titles such as, quote, here's what to do if you start catching feelings, or, quote, here's how to biohack your brain to have sex without getting emotionally attached, end quote. So our culture is trying to help us have sex more casually. So the point that she continues to drive home in these chapters is that having casual sex with multiple partners, it's not having good results, particularly for women. And to the lie that there's nothing significant about sex, she writes simply, it isn't true and everyone knows it. She shares the story of a young woman named Abby in her book. Uh, Abby, maybe you heard this in 2021, this young woman posted a TikTok video where which just goes viral. And in this video, she just laments her participation in the hookup culture. She she laments it. It's it's hurt her. She's crying through this. And so many other women comment on this and say, oh, you're speaking to me. And that that leads to something of a, a trend where other women post similar things. Anyway, in April of 2022, Newsweek the publication sees this and, and publishes an article called, uh, quote, TikTok's young women are taking down the hookup culture. Why are they taking it down? Because it's failing them, right? The, the hookup culture, the casual sex with multiple people, it's not leading to the joy and the happiness and just having fun, but it's leading to anxiety, depression, confusion, pain. If the Bible is true, if God really designed us and designed sex in a specific way, then this is exactly what we would expect to be the case. You know, the, the reason we can't just treat sex like a leisure activity without harming ourselves and others, the reason why that's a lie is because God didn't design us or sex to be used like that. And so we're going against our design. In Genesis 2, we learn that there's, there really is no such thing as casual sex. Right? It's impossible because sex by God's design is a sign of the one flesh union between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. So from a biblical perspective, the sexual act is the most intimate act of self-giving and union you can have with another person. Now to quote the late Tim Keller here from his book on marriage, he says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less than that. And you see, the lie of the hookup culture, the lie of the sexual revolution is you can unite physically with somebody without uniting emotionally and spiritually and in all of these other ways, intellectually, financially. And I'm going to continue to quote Keller here because I think he's really good on this. He says, 
our modern society finds the idea of abstinence from sex until marriage to be so unrealistic as to be ludicrous. In fact, many people believe it's unhealthy and harmful. Very true. And he goes on to say, the Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty one. The Bible implies that sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but also personally harmful. All right, and that's that's what we're driving at in this episode. It it is personally harmful. That's what we're seeing. Uh, Keller continues, if sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self giving, then it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to another person even when we use it wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being. So I think that this is really well said and is absolutely right, and and this is what we're beginning to see. The hookup culture, this using of sex wrongly, creates all of this inner turmoil because it wasn't designed by God to be used that way. So it doesn't lead to joy. It leads to difficulty and even pain. Okay, line number two that she lists is this, quote, all sexual desires are normal and good. Now, she takes this on in her chapter called, very simply, Some Desires Are Bad. She talks about how the sexual revolution is based on the idea that there simply is no good or bad sexual desires. You can't say that anymore. If you tell someone that their desires are bad or wrong or harmful, then you're marginalizing them. You're making them victims. You're hurting sexual minorities. You're imposing power on them or or whatever. Uh, The only thing now that matters is whether or not the two people consent. As long as people consent, No other rules should be applied. You can't say anything is wrong or bad or harmful, anything like that. And she cites the slogan from the May 1968 student protest in Paris, which is, it is forbidden to forbid. The only thing you can't do is tell someone they can't do something or it's wrong. Then she argues that the radical desires of the sexual liberals do not work in a world in which human sexuality is not always beautiful, but often wicked and repulsive. So she's willing to say that we need to just call out that some sexual desires in us are not beautiful, they're not good, but wicked and repulsive. Uh, Again, she's not quoting the Bible or coming from biblical worldview, but that's right in line with what the Bible would say about some of our inner desires. Uh, She goes on, she says that we are often flattered because people tell us that our desires are good and we can find meeting and satisfying them, whatever the cost. But she says the lie of this flattery should be obvious to anyone who has ever realized after the fact that they were wrong to desire something and hurt themselves and hurt other people in pursuing it. And then she concludes, we should prioritize virtue over desire, and we should not assume that any given feeling we discover in our hearts ought to be acted on. So you can see why I like her and I like what she's saying here. Again, she's not appealing to the Bible at all, but what she's saying is very, very consistent with what the Bible teaches. It's what we would expect to see if the Bible is true. Not all desires are good. 
that is an implication of the Christian doctrine of sin, that we all come into the world marred by sin. It's affected every part of our life, and that includes our sexual desires. And so we can't assume that just because something is a natural desire or feels natural to us, that it is therefore good and should be acted upon. And to do that is a great way to harm yourself and harm others. Therefore, it is vitally important for our good and the good of others that we learn to exercise self-control, to put to death the sinful desires that we all have. And if we don't do that, as she notes in this chapter, it's going to lead to problems. It is leading to problems. It's a lie. Okay, let's move on to the last lie I want to look at. And that this one has to do with marriage. And the lie is that marriage is not that important and monogamous marriage is not good. So she has a chapter in her book, I think it's one of the last ones, that's simply titled, Marriage is Good. And of course, she makes mention of the fact that part of the sexual revolution has taken aim at the institution of marriage itself. For many people, marriage is unnecessary at best and a degrading, oppressive institution at worst. And the idea of monogamy you may know, is also under scrutiny and suspicion. It's not natural to us. It's unfair to impose that and so on and so forth. So in this chapter, she writes about several factors that she thinks have contributed to the death of marriage as an institution in Western society. She talks about first the no-fault divorce laws that became a thing in the 1960s and 70s in the United Kingdom and in our country. And it's really interesting on this. She makes the case that those who initially wanted to loosen the divorce laws did so believing that only people who were in really unhappy marriages would use this option and divorce, right? Only the extreme cases where spouses were uh, victims of domestic abuse and neglect and those sorts of things. But Of course, this isn't what happened. Once the laws were changed, divorce increased exponentially, and people who would have stayed married in the past got divorced. As she writes, quote, most modern divorces are not a result of domestic abuse. Most involve a couple simply growing apart, falling out of love, and trying for a fresh start. But, she continues, in many of these cases, the promise of a happier alternative remains unfulfilled. And she cites several studies, one of which being a study from the United Kingdom that demonstrated that between one-third and one-half of people who got divorced later regret their decision to divorce. Now, the other factors towards the death of marriage was the invention of the pill, the contraception pill. The effect of that, she writes, was to end the taboo culturally on premarital sex. And because the pill didn't actually provide, doesn't actually provide complete protection against pregnancy, research shows that once the pill was introduced, there was actually more children born out of wedlock than there were before, which is somewhat ironic. And then the third factor to the death of marriage was the decriminalization of abortion across the Western world, which provided, as she writes, a backup option in case the pill failed. So the end result of these three is that from the 1970s onward, it became much less common for women to wait until marriage before having sex. And 
it also has led to the rise of deadbeat dads. She says that before the death of marriage, only the most flagrant scoundrel would refuse to acknowledge and provide material support to his children if he was in a publicly recognized relationship with the mother at the time of conception. But now, deadbeat dads are commonplace. I think this is really important. She says, once abortion was legal and accepted, it gave dads an opportunity to have an easy out because they can say, hey, listen, you could have had an abortion. I told you to have an abortion. Uh, You didn't do it. This was your choice. You wanted it. It wasn't mine, so I'm not going to be around. So it, it just culturally changed attitudes like that. Now, at this point, she gets into the impact on children that the death of marriage has had, and not surprisingly, it isn't good. The death of marriage has led to a dramatic rise in the number of children that grow up with single parents or without parents who are married. And the evidence is in. Children just don't do nearly as well in those contexts. She notes that children who grow up in a household with only one parent are worse off than those who grow up with both, of course, on average. And step-parenthood has been described as the strongest risk factor for child abuse ever identified. Children that grow up with a single parent or step-parent have lower rates of education, earnings, higher divorce rates, higher criminal rates, and higher rates of substance abuse. Fatherlessness is associated with higher incarceration rates for boys, higher rates of teen pregnancy for girls, and greater likelihood of emotional and behavioral problems for both. And so she says, and this is a quote, parents are kidding themselves if they think that a divorce or parental separation will have no impact on their children. And so even from a secular worldview, which is what she's writing from, of course, the decoupling of sex from marriage just hasn't been good for society. It's resulted in a lot of unwanted children, abortions, and kids growing up in single parents' home, which, as she cites, they they just don't do as well. She asked the question, how can we create a sexual culture that discourages short-termism in male sexual behavior, protects the economic interests of mothers, and creates stable environments for the raising of children? And then she says these words, and we already have such technology, it's called monogamous marriage. Again, I'm not, this is not a Christian. She goes on, when monogamy is the norm of a society, it tends to become richer. It has lower rates of both child abuse and domestic abuse. Birth rates and crime rates both fall. It leads to the expectation, she says, that if a man wants to have sex in a way that is socially acceptable, he has to make himself marriageable, which means holding down a good job, setting up a household suitable for the raising of children. He has to tame himself. So her advice to her readers is get married and do your best to stay married, particularly if you have children. There you have it, right? Here's a, a secular case against the sexual revolution. Here's a voice, not from a Christian perspective, calling out the lies and the false promises and showing the damage that it has done and is doing for those who embrace it. Okay, well, one final takeaway from all this for Christians in the church, and it's simply this, we must resist the lies of the sexual revolution. We must trust that God's way 
even with all of its restrictions and the need for self-denial and self-control, is good and best. So let's heed the Proverbs. Let's stay away from the forbidden woman, for in the end, it only leads to death. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the No Lasting City podcast. Join me again next time. Goodbye. Thank you.